The story of Ruth is a bit of a Bible cul-de-sac, a kind of spotlight on what is happening to one small group of people in one town in Israel. With its next book, the Bible is back to the bigger picture. Israel has decided that it is sick of being ruled by judges, a class of righteous religious autocrats who lead armies and vanquish any neighbouring nations who threaten national security. These other nations all have hereditary leaders. God and his chosen warriors are no longer enough for Israel's people. They want a king. The age of the monarchy has arrived. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible episode 62, The Fat and the Fallen. To the Holy Bible Podcast. We were spoiled last week with a Bible book that fitted neatly into a single episode, the story of Ruth. For those of you who have stumbled into this podcast, here is where we take the cheater's route through the Bible. There's no dense theology, no guilt trips or finger wagging, and certainly no preaching. I just rattle through the narrative of this great book and you make your own minds up. The Bible I refer to is the New International Version UK edition, because as you can tell, I'm a Brit. Right, let's see how Israel goes about getting itself a king. The first book of Samuel leaps forward in time to a period after the book of Judges has ended and Israel is still doing whatever it pleases. Between them, the books of Samuel, Chronicles and Kings tell the often tawdry story of the kings who rule Israel and Judah. Samuel is the last of the judges to lead Israel, but there is a restlessness among his people. They don't want any more judges to rise up as and when Israel is in crisis. They want a more permanent leader. Israel's monarchy has an unlikely beginning. A childless woman from Ephraim arrives at the tabernacle in Shiloh and is mistaken for an alcoholic by its bumbling high priest. By the time Hannah makes her journey, the original tabernacle tent in Shiloh has morphed into a semi-permanent temple complex known as the House of the Lord. Like Ruth, Hannah lives the kind of life that fairy tales are made of. As with many fairy tales, things start out bleak. She is one of two women married to a man called Elkanah, but for some reason she is unable to have children. Meanwhile, Elkanah's other wife can't stop popping them out. This not only heightens Hannah's own sense of inadequacy, her adversary actively makes fun of her. Despite this, Elkanah is kind to Hannah, and when they travel to the Shiloh temple to make sacrifices, he gives Hannah twice as much of the leftover meat as his other wife, Peninnah. Hannah is sad enough that she can't have children, but the pain is amplified by her rival's gloating, which regularly reduces her to tears. Elkanah is heartbroken and asks if his love for her isn't worth ten sons, but there is still a massive hole in Hannah's life that only a baby can fill. One time after their meal at the temple, Hannah has had enough. 
she stands up and promises God that if he will give her a son, she will give that child to the temple and ensure that he grows up a Nazarite. Those of you who listened to Samson's story a couple of episodes ago will know that a Nazarite is a special kind of Jew who neither drinks, cuts their hair, nor touches or eats dead animals. As she speaks to God, Hannah is in a reverie. Her lips move without any sound coming out of them. From his chair at the entrance to the tabernacle, the cracked old priest in charge assumes that she is drunk. The very fact that he thinks a drunk woman would approach the temple shines a light on the moral deterioration of Israel at this time. The priest is Eli and he tells Hannah to put away her wine. When she assures him that she is sober and is praying out of grief and anguish, he mellows, sharing his hope that God will give her whatever it is she has asked him. The book describes how God hears Hannah's prayers and that nine months later she gives birth to a healthy baby boy who she names Samuel. The name means heard by God. Once the child is eating solid foods and with Elkanah's agreement, Hannah brings Samuel to the tabernacle with a young bull, some flour and wine. She reminds Eli of who she is and tells him that her tiny boy should serve God for his whole life. Hannah goes on to have more children who she can enjoy mothering throughout their childhood and it is no surprise that so many parents choose to name their daughters Hannah and not Peninnah, her mean yet fertile love rival. Before leaving for home, Hannah delivers a prayer in which she praises God for turning people's fortunes around, something which she can personally identify with. From her prayer, it is clear that Hannah is overjoyed. She has finally triumphed over her enemies, most notably her sister-wife, Peninnah. There is no one like God, she says. He is her rock, and she warns rivals not to speak arrogantly or proudly, another possible dig at her love rival. God knows everything, Hannah says, and he weighs up everything that his people do. In God's upside-down world, Hannah knows that the bows of mighty warriors can be broken, while those who are so weak that they stumble can be endowed with new strength. People who once had plenty now have to work in order to eat, while those who are hungry now have plenty. In Hannah's song, a barren woman who goes on to have seven children is contrasted with a mother who has many sons, yet pines away. Hannah sees God as all-powerful. He brings death and he brings back to life. He sends both poverty and wealth. He humbles the great and exalts the humble. Focusing once more on her own situation, Hannah credits God with raising the poor from the dust and the needy from the ash heap. People like her can and do sit with princes and inherit a throne of honour, she says. In fact, the ancestor of her own tribe, Ephraim's father Joseph, was sold as a slave and rose to be Egypt's second in command behind Pharaoh. Some believe that Hannah is looking ahead to the time of Jesus when it is believed that all Christians will sit alongside God in heaven, regardless of how humble their origins. 
In her song, Hannah is confident that God is in full control of the world he has made, that he will protect those who remain faithful to him, and that his enemies will be silenced in what she refers to ominously as the place of darkness, an early Bible reference to hell. Human strength is useless, she sings, and anyone who stands up to God will fail. Listeners are told that God has the ability to thunder from heaven. He will judge the whole earth and give strength to his king. This is the Old Testament's first mention of a Messiah figure, an all-conquering king and liberator who will one day rescue and reunite Israel. All those who God chooses to do his work will be given the strength and skills to carry it out, Hannah sings, and her vision shows how connected she appears to be to God at a time when most of her compatriots have given up on him completely. Her work done, Hannah leaves her son with Eli and heads back to the family home in the town of Ramah. Whether Hannah is following some kind of Israelite tradition, there is no other record in the Bible of a child being handed over to tabernacle priests to raise. To his credit, Eli sees this as part of God's plan and seems glad to have a boy to look after who, unlike his own sons, isn't a complete liability. A far cry from great high priests such as Aaron, Eleazar and Phinehas, the man in charge of Israel's spiritual well-being at the time that Samuel is born fumbles his way through the early chapters of the book of Samuel like a well-meaning but utterly inept grandpa. After his initial faux pas with Hannah, Eli looks after her tiny child and, fortunately for the infant, his grandfatherly vibe makes the tabernacle in Shiloh a safe and happy home. However, the old priest's biggest downfall is his wayward sons, over whom he appears to have no control. These corrupt thugs masquerading as temple priests have been helping themselves to the best bits of any meat sacrificed to God at the Shiloh sanctuary. In Old Testament times, priests are entitled to meat from a sacrificed animal's breast, right thigh, shoulders and head, as well as its internal organs. By simply sticking in a fork and pulling out the best bit, Phineas and Hophni are breaking the law. They are even pre-ordering the food that they want people to sacrifice, using God's temple as an elaborate meal delivery service, and using the women who serve in the Shiloh tabernacle as their own personal harem. Unsurprisingly, the book of Samuel relates how furious God is with these rogue priests. This is in stark contrast with the innocent young child who is growing up with them. Samuel performs the role of junior priest at the tabernacle. Each year when his parents come here to worship, his mother brings him a new outer garment to go over his simple linen priest's clothing and which will keep him warm, showing that she still loves him. Eli is clearly very pleased with his assistant while despairing of his own sons, whose reckless and corrupt management of the tabernacle is widely known. He blesses Elkanah and Hannah, and asks God to provide them with more children to replace the one they have given him to look after. The book tells its readers that God hears Eli's prayer, and that Hannah is rewarded with three more sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, Samuel grows older in his holy surroundings, and the suggestion is that the close presence of God has a positive effect on his upbringing. 
For his part, Eli is hugely frustrated and disappointed with his own sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Despite one of them sharing a name with one of Israel's greatest priests, he worries for them. If one person wrongs another, God can act as a go-between to make things right between both parties, he tells them, before adding ominously that anyone whose crime is against God has no one to plead their case. Confident that what they are doing is completely fine, the two men ignore their father. The book tells readers that this is all part of God's master plan to ultimately kill them. Like the two ugly sisters to Samuel's Cinderella, the men's behaviour is in stark contrast to the young man living alongside them, whose popularity appears to be growing not just with God, but with the people who come to the tabernacle to worship him. God, it appears, has had enough and sends a message to Eli that he is about to call time on his two sons. Thanks to the continued abuse of their position as priests and their debauched and hedonistic living, Eli and his sons earn a visit from a prophet. The holy man explains how critical the role of high priest is to Israel. His message is that God personally chose Eli's blood ancestor Aaron to be his priest. Of all the families brought out of Egypt, Aaron's were asked to minister in the tabernacle and oversee the spiritual well-being of the nation. Part of the deal was that the priests were to take their share of the food offered at sacrifices, but Eli's family is making a mockery of this, the prophet says. By allowing his sons to grow fat on the rich pickings brought to Shiloh, Eli is honouring his family more than God. When Aaron was first made high priest, God made a promise that his family would minister at the tabernacle forever. Thanks to their corrupt management of his sanctuary, God is now about to change the rules. According to his messenger, he will honour those who honour him, but anyone who openly resents and despises him will be shown a cold shoulder. According to the book, God promises that the lives of Eli's descendants will be cut short. They may serve Israel well, but none of them will see old age, and those who survive to serve at the tabernacle altar will still bring disappointment and shame. Hophni and Phinehas will die on the same day, the prophet announces, after which God will install his own priest, a man who will serve him faithfully and whose heirs will continue in the role forever. As for the rest of Eli's family, they will beg to become priests, simply to have something to eat. These are sobering words for Eli, who, while not a terrible person himself, has to take some responsibility for his hoodlum sons and their almost complete spiritual negligence. Against the odds given who he is living with, the child who is growing up in the tabernacle appears to be uniquely tuned in to God. Eli can now barely see, and Samuel is still a child, helping out in the tabernacle. According to the book, this is a quiet time for Israel spiritually. There are few visions or messages from God, suggesting that almost no one whose job it is to be open to these is actually doing their job. Then, one night, Eli and Samuel are lying down to sleep when Samuel hears a voice calling him. Assuming that it is Eli, he runs over to see how he can help. Eli denies calling him and tells Samuel to go back to sleep. The voice calls a second time and again Samuel goes over to Eli to see what's up. Eli is adamant that he didn't call him and sends the boy back to bed. 
Despite them both sleeping within spitting distance of the Ark of the Covenant, the Jews' most sacred box which contains the tablets on which are written the Ten Commandments, and despite Eli being high priest, the old man fails to make any connection to the voice being God's. Almost as unbelievably, given that he is growing up in the religious epicentre of Israel, Samuel knows almost nothing about God, and so it doesn't occur to him that he might be receiving a divine message. Readers are left to draw their own conclusions as to what Eli and his sons have been teaching him, or what Samuel believes the purpose of the building in which he is living to be. Finally, when the voice calls a third time, Eli realises that God might be trying to make contact with his young assistant, and tells Samuel that next time he hears the voice, he is to ask God what he wants. This time, God actually appears in the tabernacle and calls again. The book doesn't explain how God appears, what he looks like, or how Samuel isn't killed simply for looking at him. In the Old Testament, anyone who looks directly at God dies instantly. However, the sense is that God's presence is with the child here in the tabernacle. Samuel tells God that he has his undivided attention. What he hears is that God is calling time on the wretched priesthood of Eli and his renegade sons, and that everything bad that he promised would happen to them is about to be unleashed. There is no amount of sacrifices that can be made in order to wipe clean the guilt of this current set of appalling priests, God tells him. In the morning, Eli demands a debrief, and, to his credit, the boy doesn't hide any awkward home truths in order to spare the old man's feelings. Eli seems pretty accepting of God's plan. God needs to do whatever he feels right, he says. Rather than an immediate disaster that terminates the reign of Hophni and Phinehas, there appears to be some delay, and the book tells its readers that Samuel grows up with God as his guardian, and that God listens to all his prayers. Samuel is regarded as a prophet by the whole of Israel, and the book adds that God continues to appear to him at the tabernacle in Shiloh. The final straw for Eli is when his sons take the Ark of the Covenant with them into a battle against the neighbouring Philistines, believing that simply having the sacred chest with them on the battlefield is enough to guarantee victory against the enemy. The holy wooden casket doesn't make its outing to the battlefield immediately. It takes a defeat against the Philistines that results in the loss of 4,000 Israelite troops to see it spring into action. The drubbing leads to Israel's elders asking themselves why God has allowed such a humiliation. Rather than ask God himself, the men take it upon themselves to fetch the ark from Shiloh and use it like a lucky talisman to repel the Philistine threat. Hophni and Phinehas are clearly keen for the Ark to be used in this way, and the arrival of the holy wooden box in the Israelite battle camp has a seismic effect. Israel's soldiers roar so loudly at the knowledge that God's presence is with them that the noise is heard in the Philistine camp. The Philistines can only conclude that a god has entered Israel's camp, and they are terrified. They appear well versed in the power of what they refer to as Israel's gods and the plagues they brought down on Egypt and their only option is to fight for their lives. Complacent that the battle must now go their way because God is physically with them, the last thing Israel is expecting is another defeat. It's an absolute rout. 
30,000 Israelites lose their lives, including both of Eli's sons, and what's left of the army flees to the safety of its tents. This is the single most shocking loss of life in Israel since the death of a Levite's concubine in the time of the judges leads to civil war. Eli clearly has his own misgivings about the Ark going to war and waits anxiously by the road for news. A survivor of the battle finally makes it back to Shiloh and a cry goes up in the town as people hear of the catastrophic loss. By now, Eli is 98 years old and when he learns from the man that his sons are not only dead but that the Ark has been captured by the Philistines, he suffers some kind of seizure, falling backwards off his chair. Eli is heavily overweight and the fall breaks his neck, killing him. His blindness and corpulence through greed making him a potent symbol of Israel's leadership at this time. Just as the news arrives, Phineas's wife goes into labour and gives birth to a son. The ordeal is too much for the woman who only has time to name her child before she dies. The name she chooses is Ichabod, which means no glory. Other famous Ichabods are Ichabod Bennett Crane, a 19th century colonel in the US Army who lent his name to the lead character in Henry Irving's story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Why the real Crane was named after the biblical Ichabod is unknown. As for baby Ichabod's mother, her husband, brother-in-law and father-in-law are dead. Israel's priesthood has been decimated, and with the Ark now in enemy hands, it feels to her that God himself has abandoned his nation. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Just search Holy Bible, W-H-O-L-L-Y-B-U-Y-A-B-L-E. Holy Bible Podcast. And if you like what you're hearing, tell everyone you meet. And don't forget to leave us a five-star rating wherever you're listening. Thank you. Thank you.